Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Buyer's Market Podcast. I'm our executive producer, Nathan Doyle, and I am here today with Matthew Winkelstein. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a little while since we've been able to have one of these little fireside chats. It has been a minute. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about the, all the, the neat guests we've had and also uh, for you to once again pepper me with some tough questions. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm looking forward to it. Um, one of the things I thought was the, the most interesting beat that we kept coming across over the past couple of episodes between Hugh and um, Steve and just kind of the rest of the customers or the, the rest of the guests that we've had come through as we're talking to our, our audience um, is this idea of understanding friction um this idea of presenting yourself through the lens of your customer this idea that what can we do to kind of eliminate the the things between us and our buyer that might stop them from making a decision what's stopping them from getting to that yes that we're solved that we're also frequently after um so if you don't mind i want to go through some some ideas about okay, who are our customers' audiences? Um, what are some of those pain points that stop those buyers, those those audiences, from making the decision we want to see? And what can we do to to kind of alleviate some of that tension, some of that friction? Does that sound like a plan? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I I think people are going to be surprised when we get into this conversation about what they perceive as friction and what things actually play out as friction in the whether it's the buying process or the recruiting process. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And so when we when we start talking about our audience in this case, um, it, we we obviously tend to navigate towards the customer, towards the person that we're actively selling our product to. But in our space, the the audience goes a little bit beyond that. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit for me? Yeah, and uh, I, I you've heard it. You know, we heard it from Hugh, and if you're plugged into this space at all, you hear it all the time. It's not just the battle for projects, it's the battle for talent. You know, the uh, the AEC space was not spared from the great resignation. They've also experienced that. Um, there's also been a little bit of a brain loss because of that. And so when you're talking about who your different audiences are, it's not just the people that you're trying to sell to, it's the people that you're trying to get inside your organization, that you're trying to recruit to be a part of the organization. And just like everyone understands this in sales, it's cheaper to expand scope with a customer than it is to find a new customer. And the same thing is true with your employees. If you're constantly trying to take care of a large percentage of your population that you're losing from attrition because of whatever reason, that's a much more expensive endeavor than communicating with them on a consistent basis, creating that vision that they can get behind and creating a rallying cry for all your current evangelists and employees to get behind. Yeah, I, th- I thought Hugh brought up a really interesting point in episode 14 about strategies great and the right strategy can take you a long way but you have to have the right people in place to support it. If you're trying to onboard a bunch of folks that don't understand the, the 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 niche that you're trying to fill or that are dedicated to old processes that aren't willing to get on board, even the best strategy in the world is going to kind of putter out and collapse under the weight of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And so like as we look at these audiences, you have your, your customer, your employees, and the talent that you're trying to recruit. Uh, the the thing that I keep kind of circling back to is like we're not just marketers, we're not just salespeople. We are people who communicate for a living. That is that is the the nexus of what we try to accomplish here. Try to be concise and persuasive and engaging and entertaining and all of these sort of things that make a message effective. 
Um, and so part of what I think we're trying to do here is figure out ways that we as communicators can leverage our digital presence to engage those customers and reduce those, those friction elements. Um, we, we were recently talking about this, that episode of Hidden Brain where they're talking about friction and fuel and different ways that you can speed up that process. And the, the story that you and I really jammed on a lot was that story from the University of Chicago where they're receiving applications and they're doing their, their regular annual admissions, but they only have like 4,000 admissions or 4,000 applications coming in every year, which compared to a rival school like Princeton, who gets almost 27,000 applications in every year, that, that, that's a marked difference. And the story goes on, they're trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to kind of up, uh, increase the applications that we end up coming through? And they realized that they were running their, their potential student body through this far more complex, far less standardized application process. And so once they, they adjusted it, then once they fixed that friction point a little bit, it increased the application uptake through the roof onto that closer to 30,000 applicant window that their similar schools were seeing. And so that idea of, okay, what can we do to adjust the experience to encourage yeses across these three elements um, really carries a lot of weight for organizations trying to make these future-centric decisions, these growth-centric decisions. Um, so I'm curious, what are some of the, the tension points that you're seeing in those three audiences? Um, that I, 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 you know, I've already talked about this, but I absolutely love that story. And so I'm going to circle. I'm going to answer your question again about the three audiences. If I forget, please remind me. But sure. I want to touch on one thing that I think it's lost on some people. Where um, you know, we all like to think that we make intellectual decisions all the time. Marcus and I talked a little bit about that, and I think that this particular example is a great example of these are some of the most highly educated, most intelligent people in the country. And because your process is a little bit more cumbersome than other people's, thousands of people decided not to apply to your school, not because they're concerned about the rigor of the university, not because they're concerned about how much it costs to get into the university or how they're going to pay for any of that. The friction point that drove their numbers down was making the application process harder. And so when you think about how that applies in the AAC space, and this is where I'm going to get into answering your question, um, I think it's very similar where if when a customer we'll start out with the customer if when a, when a customer um attempts to learn information about you or about the offering that you provide or about what makes you different than your competitors and it's not easy and intuitive for them to do that how many customers do you think you're losing right right off the bat where they can't find it and then as that process continues to slog on and they can't find it it's not available it's not apparent Oh, and by the way, I have to actually reach out to somebody to get this information. You can you can start to you can start to hypothesize in your head just how many people you're missing out on because you're not providing the information. And that's an old legacy thing from, you know, especially engineers or OEMs in this space where knowledge was the big guard, right? It's the same thing that universities are struggling with now. Yeah, universities are still important, but you can go get the same education online through Coursera. And so the, the what people are really after now is that experience and that that's shifted a little bit and universities have had to change. And I think it's the same in this space where you can't hoard all the knowledge and expect people to have to come to you and pay the toll to get to the knowledge. You have to meet the customers where they are, adjust to the reality and help them through the new process, not wish the process was previous. Yeah. Um, you knew Hugh had this conversation on episode 14 where 
the, the differentiator isn't necessarily the service that you're providing. It isn't necessarily the the infield knowledge that you know. It's the people that you bring to the conversation. It's the the personalities that you have around you. It's the way you frame that message. It's the way you communicate with your customer about your values and your ideals and your beliefs and what they see reflected back in themselves in that engagement that makes them want to partner with you as opposed to organizations B, C, and D over here. A absolutely. And you know, you're talking, you're kind of going further down the spectrum where people are trying to understand culture and what it's like to work there. And that's an important component too. But I see people even missing on the very basic element of what do you do? How can you help me before you even get to that culture piece? And so, you know, what I, what I always think about in my head is how many people are you losing at that stage? I definitely agree with what you said. And you're going to start to lose people there. But when people go to your website and they don't see what they, what everything that you do, or it's not readily apparent that you're, you're starting off with a lot of friction from the beginning. Right, right. So what are some of the strategies that you see implemented to help reduce those friction points and help people walk away with the information they need earlier in the process? Um, creating creating customer-focused content and then ungating it, allowing people to be able to just get the content, to be able to consume the information, creating... A, a depth of knowledge that allows people to consume it at whatever level they're at. If they're a technical engineer, providing enough information that they can understand this space and your value in it. If it's a buyer that doesn't understand it from a technical component, but wants to understand everything about your offering, making sure that you're also providing enough information for them. And being able to do that for all the part, all the people that could possibly be on that buying team. And then doing other things like making it easy for companies to get a hold of you. I haven't seen this a ton in our space, but there's a couple that come to mind where they've implemented chatbots. Some people are negative on chatbots. I, I can understand, especially if you bought something online, you want to talk to somebody. But in this space where you know it's large companies and you need to be able to filter who to talk to, it's a nice avenue for a customer to be able to communicate with someone, further their, further their research, and then connect with the right person. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that ties back into kind of some of the pain points that we've been experiencing and, and talking to a lot of people in the market around how you attract customers and how you retain talent and how you attract new talent and that whole concept of, okay, it's a lot harder to get in front of people. Uh, so make sure that we have those messages accessible in the places they want to be. Um, it's a lot harder to motivate or uh, individuals to come up with their own messaging. People want the path of least resistance. And so when they see those those visionary statements come down from leaders and have that, that clear organizational messaging and the content around them, it can move things forward and helps them communicate the, the concepts better with their customers. Um, and when outside talent sees that, they're more invigorated. They can see themselves reflected. They can see where they fit in. They can see that some of their values are, are reflected back in the way the organization runs. Um, and it really kind of it brings everything together and almost like helps it all coalesce into something greater than just, hey, this is who we are and what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And and you hit on another point that I, I don't think that um, very many people think of. And I know I don't I don't spend a ton of time thinking about it right now, but it, it's the reality. When you hire a new project manager onto your team, when you hire a new sales individual contributor, when you hire all these people that are out there talking to your customers, how are you training them? 
And so you're probably doing the HR stuff, but how do they know how to communicate your offering? How do they know how to communicate that legacy that you have with all your employees that are 10, 20 year employees? How does your two month employee do? How do they communicate that? And that's another point of good content. If you're producing good content for the employees that work for you, for your customers, and for the employees you want to attract, when let's say Matthew Winkelstein, sales professional starts, I can go consume content and get a good feel for what are the best communication lines that we have? What are the best things I should be communicating about my new company? And absent of that, you have a lot of people that are left individually to try and figure this out. And you hire smart people so they'll all figure it out. But do you want them spending the first 12 to 18 months in your organization trying to figure out what I should be communicating to customers, how I should be communicating on projects? Or do you want them to be able to expedite that process using the same thing you're using to attract talent, to keep your talent happy, and then also to attract customers? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the same logic between like building internal operating processes. You want to be able to expedite the time to value of the people that you bring in and so being able to have those consistent messaging points brought through just incrementally increases their ability to get back in the market and repeat those things to their target audience absolutely and you don't you don't have as much people uh you don't you don't have people hunting and pecking right like what what do customers care about? What what in all the stuff that I've learned about this great organization do they actually want to hear about? You're able to expedite that because you see what's working and you, you're hearing it coming from thought leaders. Yeah, well, and I think particularly on the customer side and on the talent side, the added benefit of all of that is it allows those organizations to kind of self-qualify themselves in a certain way where they can look at the content and say like, oh, hey, this is what they do. I don't need that. Or hey, this is the uh, how they prioritize community or people or whatever, and that doesn't mesh with how I'd like to think of myself. And so I can, I know I wouldn't be a good fit there. They can kind of works to streamline that that onboarding process so that by the time you're having those initial conversations, be it a, a first touch on a pitch or a first interview with a customer or with a client, with a new hire, excuse me, um, they've already done some homework. They've already had the opportunity to, to educate themselves and inform themselves so you can get straight to, okay, how can we help each other as opposed to, hey, okay, this is what we do and this is what we're about. Yeah. And uh, I want you to ask me at the end of this about pa about some of the passive benefits as well. We're talking about all the active benefits where people are in this search mode where they're looking for this. And I thought a, a really good example was what Marcus talked about when he talks about how he attracts people to the ASME chapter at Purdue. Um, he talks about how he wants everyone to know exactly what it's about, not just so people can be attracted, but so people that aren't of the same mission don't want to achieve the same things. They're not wasting their time or ASME's time by participating. And that's a, um, I think that's an uneasy thing for some people to think about. I'm going to lose customers because they don't want to work with me. But the reality is you're eventually probably going to get to that point anyways. You can't uh, why waste your time? Why waste your energy trying to work with people that ultimately wouldn't end up being a good fit anyways, but then because they don't know about you and it's difficult for you to learn about them, you end up far down the process and, you know, in the, in the best case scenario, maybe you end up no bidding it. In the worst case scenario, you could end up in a progressive design build contract that after the design's done, you're like, I don't want to work with this customer anymore. And it's a lot more difficult to take that exit ramp, even though it is contractually available, than it is just to not work with that customer to begin with. And right. vice versa, and contractor and vendor, same way. Yeah, it's the, the idea that you, you 
I mean, it's the same thing that you talk about whenever you like start dating, for for that matter. It's it's you get the stuff figured out really, really early on in the process before you really commit to it and, and put a ring on it, so to speak, so that you're not stuck in a situation long term that you just don't want to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing on the, so on the on the on the active and passive, I want to circle back to you real quick. And I, I obviously it plays it plays really well in the active state, but I think what's underestimated is what happens passively, where um, I'm an employee. I use employee, and then I'll go to customer. So if I'm an employee at a competitor company, and I'm seeing the leader of another company post good content, I'm understanding what they're about. I'm understanding their leadership style. I'm understanding the mission. And then for whatever reason, I'm unhappy at my job, or maybe I see a job posting for this company that this leader works at. That is the passive way that it works, where when they are thinking about switching companies, who do they think of and why? And when they see that job posting, what do they what do they connect to that job posting? Do they connect the individual people they think they might work with or just this big logo? And if it's just the big logo, it's a little bit more difficult to attract people because people want to work for good leaders now. Right. Yeah, it's I mean, how many times have you seen that in in, in 2020? hiring guides like you don't pick the organization you pick the leader you you think about okay who do i want to learn from and where are they and how can i get engaged with them um because circling back into the differentiation conversation that you started with hugh that idea that fundamentally a lot of what everybody does is kind of the same to 95 percent of the degree so who's who's the person that is inspiring who's the person that is engaging who's the person that um respects my work-life balance who's the person that has those ideals that align with what i want to accomplish with my career with my family and with my life and how can i hitch my wagon to wherever they're going yeah absolutely and you if you think about it on the customer side too you know if you're producing good content and it's a it's about the industry you know um i think we all like to fantasize that all our customers just think about whatever we're offering all the time when the reality is it's probably less than five percent of most buyers jobs we heard that when we were interviewing buyers a couple months ago we heard it really from jill like this is a small portion of what i need to do and so I think we like to think that people think about what we do a lot more than they actually do. And so when that moment actually comes where they need your service, who do they think of and why? And that's where creating good content in a passive way is also helpful where they might be interested in your pictures. They might be interested in the fact that this person's an inspiring leader. I might just want to understand what's happening in this new technology. So I start following these people. But then I switch buying roles or maybe a new project comes across my desk and I need to reach out to someone. Who do I think of and why? Mm. And everyone would admit and everyone would agree that they want to be the first at the table. They want to be able to build the trust. They want to be able to build the relationship. They want to help the customer. And if you're not doing that, if you're not showing up in the passive way, as time goes on, buyers become younger, more people perform their own research, those in-person um, historical relationships have dissipated. Who do they think of and why? And that's going to matter more and more as time goes on. Yeah. And and to, to touch on that, um, you, you started introducing that idea that people come to us for their reasons, not for the reasons that we promote, not for our reasons. So being able to understand that why of what's bringing them to the table is incredibly valuable and when you can align the content that you're creating with that why that's how you sink your teeth in that's how you establish that that front of mind prominence and awareness so that 
once they go through that passive experience and become an active buyer, you're already at the front of the table. Yeah, and you can you can start the conversation, and um, you can you know you can get going on that. Uh, I it, it, this reminds me again of a previous conversation we had about sales and marketing alignment, and some of the issues where um, I don't see a lot of marketers in the AC space that meet with customers, or for, to be fair to marketers in the AC space that are afforded the opportunity to meet with customers, and then at the same time you don't have good sales and marketing alignment. So where are those messages coming from? I've seen it come from a lot, a handful of people that are at the executive level. And I always question, do they really know what's happening with the customer? How does the marketer know that this is what the customer thinks without talking to the customer? How does this executive know who doesn't talk to customers in the same way that frontline salespeople know? And then you never really get everyone in the room to talk about it. And you just make intelligent guesses based off the intellect that's in the room, but you really need the voice of the customer. Um, that, that reminded me of that. I know that's not the topic, but it just it's that point is uh, very relevant there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the the idea of of testing your assumptions and whether it's OK, this is what the customer wants and why they're coming to me or this is how we've always done business. Like we we lean into these ideas that um, that are comfortable. Um, that have been established that don't necessarily challenge the way that we view the world or challenge the way we run our businesses. Yet, as everything else around us evolves and shifts, we've got to figure out a way to augment our processes to adapt to that world without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Trying to figure out how we can do what we do really well with these new innovations that help us solve some of those problems that we described earlier. That that's really well said. It's not um, it's not that in-person relationships don't matter. It's not that forming those in-person relationships doesn't matter. It's not that those things are going to become less important. It's just the stage in the buyer's journey is changing, and that's I don't think that that's really a contest. If you're paying attention or you've been listening to what people are saying, I don't think you can really contest that anymore. Yeah, like when we've been historically talking about the buyer's journey as like the parallel to the hero with a thousand faces, hero's journey narrative of like, okay, there's the inciting action and the rising action, the climax and the fall, and all, all of those kind of like storytelling plot points. Essentially, like the story's starting a lot sooner than than it historically has, and so how can we ramp ourselves up so that we're in that spot in halfway through act at the beginning of act two, I guess then and as opposed to being stuck in the epilogue trying to get all this backstory figured out <laughs> yeah when you're uh, i like that epilogue analogy you know when your first meeting's an epilogue about what you do it's not a great start <laughs> yeah yeah or i guess a preface anyway um <laughs> you're the author <laughs> yeah 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 um so i want to i want to kind of bring all of this together a little bit into something something a little bit more functional um, we've been talking about getting content in front of people. We've been talking about trying to find the right audience and attract the right um, the right talent and keep the existing talent and engage them and move them forward. Um, how does kind of digital marketing fit into that that greater umbrella? And specifically, how can people start acting on some of those ideas? I'm thinking specifically about like the conversations we've had with Marcus about leveraging LinkedIn, um, the conversations we've had with Steve about just connecting with people and empowering or people around them, uh, the conversation with Hugh about getting your messages in front and getting your personalities in front. How do you see, um, just from a practical way, people using the tools around them to really amplify those narratives? 
great question. I want to break it down too into two different answers. One being the individual contributor and the second being the company, because I think we've heard kind of both of those things. Um, the individual contributor level, if you are in sales or you are some PL leader and you want to try and help customers understand what you're about, you can start producing content on your own. Um, that's a great way to start to understand how the platform works. It's a great way to start to engage with people you don't know when you start to connect with people and you get an idea of how your messaging works. You don't always get it right from the platform. Where I've seen you get it mostly is you go to a conference, you meet with a customer, and then you start to hear that, oh yeah, I've seen your post. Oh yeah, I like your post. Because it does it does take a little while to mature. You know, it, it's not like you throw your first post up and you get an opportunity. Although I have heard of that happening, it's very rare. It's more of like a three, six, nine month where you're you're doing it consistently and then you start to really see the results. That was also highlighted in Marcus's um, in Marcus's interview. Another thing on the individual contributor level, level, if you're a leader, it's if you can talk about leadership, if you can talk about things that inspire you and inspire your team, you're going to have a whole heck of a lot easier attracting time attracting talent. Do you want to rely solely on HR to go find the type of people you want? Or do you want to put the type of person you are out into the world and let the type of people that would work well for you come to you when you have that opportunity? So that's on the individual contributor level. I think it's it's understanding how the platform works. It's dipping your toe in creating content, committing to it, creating good content. Uh, and then another one that Marcus mentioned, you know, connecting with people you don't know. How are you going to expand your audience if you just connect with people you know when you're not even getting out there in person as much as you were? Um, on the company level, it's a it's a couple things. So it's a, it starts with a commitment, right? If you're if you're uh, tepidly going into this and you're not really supporting it and you're micromanaging every sentence and line that comes out, it's it's going to be difficult to make progress. You're going to slow down your own progress. You're going to slow down your own learning curve, and it's going to be difficult for you to really see the results in a, in a palatable amount of time versus if you make a real commitment to it and see how it works over six to 12 months, then I'm confident you would see the results. But if you dip your toe in and say, oh, it's not working, well, yeah, it's not working because you haven't really put the effort into it. Um, and then after you start to see it works, or maybe you're starting off from a different position, you do believe it works. You've seen it work for other people. You've seen it work for other companies. I think Hugh's point was really resonant. It's you have to find the talent to execute on that. And are there people inside your organization that can execute on it now? Probably, but not without some help. And some help comes in multiple forms. It comes in support from an executive who's willing to give some air cover for that person that's trying to come up with this new idea. Um, and it also comes in reskilling. So you're going to have your younger leaders in the organization that try and push these things forward or gravitate to and say, hey, we can take this on. Um, but then there's going to be a lot of other people that are used to doing something and you're going to have to provide the avenue to reskill them or you're going to have to hire a bunch of new people eventually, which We've already talked about, everyone knows the cost difference there. So committing to it, hiring strategic talent to infuse in the organization that brings this. Hugh mentioned um, uh, consultants, a consultant, bringing in a consultant to help them kind of work through the roadmap, bring their best practices, bring the lessons they learned, um, and then ultimately coming up with a plan and a strategy to reskill the people that you have doing analog jobs that are starting to go away. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I think you brought up a really interesting point about <clears throat> how, especially at the at the enterprise level, the impulse from a lot of organizations is to be very, very hands-on with that content creation process. 
Um, and, and rightfully so. You have a brand that's been established. There, there are very high stakes for saying the wrong thing and for saying the right thing the wrong way, um, especially right now. How do you kind of help ease the mind of a business owner stepping into that conversation who's going, I can't start putting stuff out there because of X, Y, or Z, for, because they're, they're concerned that they're not going to sound confident enough to, to make a good impact with the audience because they're concerned they're going to get canceled or something like that because they're, they're concerned that they're going to say the wrong thing. How do you kind of help ease that conversation? Um, I, I think there's two points of friction there. There is the actual content creation piece, which is what do I say? How do I say it? How do I produce that? And I think we've actually developed a really good process to, to be able to get that out of thought leaders. So if you're committed and that's where you're really hung up, I'd encourage you to reach out to us and we can help you overcome that hurdle. Um, the, next, the next piece of, um, of being concerned about what to say is start off, if you're that concerned, start off a little more conservative. Um, you can still get good content out there, be a little bit more conservative, leave a little bit on the table and start to gauge and understand. Um, I, that's not that that has never been our strategy. We're a little bit more aggressive. We've we've done it enough to know we're not going to break things and kind of where we can push the lines. But if, if you're more conservative, I would say embrace that a little bit, but don't make that a barrier to you doing it at all. Like put out, leave a little bit of bone, leave a little meat on the bone and then say, okay, that didn't break anything. Let's circle back and keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the thing that I always encourage people at, at any level, be you an individual contributor that's considering posting on LinkedIn more consistently or wanting to start a blog or any sort of content generation or a, a Fortune 500 company that's just really trying to to amplify into the next level for the digital age, just do something. Just cre start creating, start putting words down, start putting yourself out there a little bit more and take that first step into the unknown a little bit. And that's the first thing that you have to accomplish, whether it's growing a, a YouTube channel or a LinkedIn following or a relationship like that you and I have talked about this a lot, that zero to one is the hardest part. Getting started is the hardest part. And then once you gain some momentum and start to break through that inertia and start to reduce some of that internal friction, you can start gaining momentum and start feeling a little bit more confident in what you're doing and know that, hey, I can put this out there and no one's going to push back on it. Or I can put this back out, out there and people are going to say, hey, I saw you saw your post at the next conference that you go to. And that's that's that feels really, really good, whether you're closing deals or not off of it the act of seeing that validated in the wild is so worth it as opposed to just sitting back there and fretting about people catching you in some sort of weird unanticipated trap yeah you hit on something uh you hit on something about putting something out there and getting some friction back i I, people shy away from that because they don't like conflict in general. But if uh, there's an old there's an old quote, a friend, um, a friend to everyone's a friend to no one. Um, people do have opposing views. And if you aren't comfortable dealing with that, that can be difficult. I don't see it a lot in our space, not as much as when you're on Twitter and you're talking about tech and other things. Oh, yeah. Definitely don't experience that on LinkedIn. Um, but there are still some people that might take an opposing view. You can deal with it in a respectful way. Um, the other thing I wanted to hit on there that you that you talked about is um, that enterprise control. And so we talked just a second ago about how business owners can overcome this. I would encourage larger companies to trust the people they hire. 
So the thing that I don't understand when we work with some clients is they have a they have a sales team. They have people that they trust to talk to customers about multi-million dollar projects. They have people that they trust to do their job when no one's looking because you can't really, it's tough to know what people are doing when they're in these sales roles, right? You're either going around meeting customers or you're not. You trust them enough to do that. You trust them to talk to multiple customers, but then you don't trust them enough to make a post on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we experienced that a bit and that's, you know, that's a delicate conversation when we're talking to certain people, but it's a reality. And I think if you take a pragmatic approach to it and think, do I trust this person to sell my company? Do I trust this person to influence my reputation in a region or with a handful of customers? Why, why don't I trust them to be able to make content? And even if it's not from the branded company page, at least having an influence, but at a minimum, your own LinkedIn. I, we see that a bit too, where it's companies want to control their individual contributors LinkedIn, and it's why. What do you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I think there's an element to that that I mean, the internet is forever. You can yeah. go off and and take a, a client out for drinks, and like that conversation stays there, no matter what it is. Whereas, again, no matter what you post on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, like that stays, and that's when you understand the playground when you've when you've been in that space for a little while like you know we know how to post on linkedin we know how to post on twitter we got introduced to facebook as high schoolers and college students and everyone told us hey don't post drinking and all this stuff on there because it's going to ruin your future we've been through that gauntlet at this stage and things and for different markets and different audiences that's a different transition and a different shifts in mindset so you have to learn what rules you can break before, or you have to learn the rules that you have to, the, the rules of the box that you're playing in before you learn which rules you can break and how you continue to grow in that. Yeah, that, that, that's a fair point. Um, I guess I, I, uh, I view especially LinkedIn content and engaging in a LinkedIn audience where you can really, you can really segment and put some rules in. Yeah. Um, I am not going to be on LinkedIn responding to comments after I've had a couple glasses of wine. Um, I'm not going to respond to a comment that is incendiary within the first 10 minutes. I'm going to take a deep breath and understand, like slow myself down. The same thing you would do in email. And I know that might not be a great example because people pop off at emails, but it's the same thing with this. It's just, it's having that cadence. I know people that, that they leverage this strategy and they just don't do anything on LinkedIn. They let, us take care of everything. They let us develop the content with them. And then they don't really have to worry about saying anything that's off base because everything's vetted in a timely manner where, you know, when you work on something for a couple of weeks for the next month, you have more time to think about, you have more time to digest versus you're out there trying to respond to a bunch of comments. And some of them may be nice. Some of them may be not. And maybe I've had a glass of wine. That's a recipe for disaster. Oh, absolutely. 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 <laughs> yeah, and that all comes down to just understanding and trusting your people in the places that you put them yeah. circling back to to your your point earlier you you put the right sales team in place because you know that when they're out in the field they're going to make the right impression you put the right frontline workers in the field because you know that when they're on the job site they're going to represent your organization in the way that you expect them to you put the right people in leadership because you know that the vision that they represent and the ideals that they carry represent who you want or how you want your organization to be seen. And that that translates into customers, that translates into talent, that translates into your employees, because they, in the same way that you're looking down and looking out, they're looking up and trying to see those same signals coming out from the organization. 
Yeah, and one one point that you made that I think is really good, and I want to piggyback on, is you had talked about, you know, in that when you're out to di- when you're out to dinner and you have that conversation, and maybe it's not a great conversation, it it stays relatively tight with that group. I think that was true for a long time. I don't think that's as true anymore. You see a lot more of, and we we definitely heard that in supply chain. People are connected with their peers in a way like they never were before. So. You know, if you are concerned about that with your BD person, if you're if you're concerned about me going and having um, an, a, a terrible conversation with a client, uh, that reputation will eventually catch up to you too. So I would, I would, I would, I would caution you to to really think hard about if you don't trust them to make a couple posts, how much do you really trust them to communicate with your customers? Because customers talk like they never have before. It's easier. I can if I work at um, if I work at Detroit Edison, I can go look up my peers at AEP and ask them about this specific vendor. I can go look at, I can go look up my peers for Pacific gas and electric on the other coast and do the same thing. And so I, I definitely, I definitely think there is a difference and you hit on that point. The internet is forever, but I'd also challenge people to think about your reputation goes directions that you don't know it does either. No, that's fair. That's, that's, I think 100% fair. So let's, let's start bringing this down a little bit and start wrapping up for the conversation today. Um, we have these individuals in place. We have these messages out there. Um, what advice would you give an organization considering starting their own content program um, who's who's hitting on those those pain points of struggling to engage an audience, um, struggling to retain talent, struggling to identify talent? Um, what advice would you give them moving forward? Start small. Because if you start, if you try and execute, if you spend six months crafting this big strategy and you start, you're going to find out in the first three weeks that most of your assumptions are wrong. So identifying small steps that you can take to start to build the capabilities, start to bring in some consultants or maybe bring in an agency to help you get it off the ground. Start very small. In our space, I would encourage everyone to start on LinkedIn. People want to look at TikTok. They want to look at Twitter. They want to look at YouTube, all these other different platforms. Not that those aren't good platforms and you can't find your customers there, but most of your customers, when they're looking in a business sense, if they're on a social platform looking for business information or consuming it, it's going to be through LinkedIn. So starting out with a single platform specific strategy and then seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, reaching out to your customers at the same time. So you're taking that data you're generating and matching that up to anecdotal evidence. That will create a nice opportunity for you to test things, but also a nice progression as things start to work. You can hire specific talent for what what actually worked, what didn't work, and you can grow from there. Yeah. You, you make a plan, adapt the plan, revise the plan, move on, repeat. Uh, yeah. yeah. Don't don't say, hey, okay, okay, we haven't been doing anything on talent and customer acquisition through digital means or through social media. Okay, let's be on LinkedIn. Let's be on Twitter. Let's run Google Ads. Let's run LinkedIn paid media. If you do not do that, that's, I mean, and when people get excited about it and see the value in it, that's actually one of the things that we deal with it. We have to temper our customers' expectations. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you've been doing nothing. We have to slow down. We have to build the foundation. Then we can start doing all this other cool stuff that does move the needle, but not as much as just doing the basic blocking and tackling. Your reverse doesn't work if you don't block. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, it's, but it's the same, it's the same philosophy that ties into like, successful habits start small make it something achievable something that you know you can absolutely execute and absolutely dominate 
And then as you get some wins, as you, again, begin to build some of that momentum and break down some of that inertia, continue to just keep building on top of it until you get to where you want to be. And that's not going to be fast. Um, it hopefully won't be incredibly long either, but it's doing the work. It's grinding it out and it's incremental wins stacked on incremental wins stacked on incremental wins until you get to your destination. Really, really well articulated um, because you do see there's I think there's a couple ways to look at it too. you um, to your point about habits. When you run your first mile, you don't see results. If you run a mile a day, a mile. Five, a mile five days a week for the next three or four months, you're going to start to see more results. If you do that for the next 10 years, you're going to be in really good health as long as your diet's not completely insane, right? And so the same thing goes here. And the longer time goes on, the more this is going to benefit you. So right now there's opportunities there. There's companies that are doing it well. There are companies that are attracting talent. There are companies that are acquiring customers this way. And that opportunity grows over time. So the things that you do now, you may see, you know, it may only generate 10% of your sales. As time goes on, that mix will continue to change. As you see people like Marcus, who we interviewed, he's all of a sudden a PL leader. He's a buyer. You hear the way he views the world. He's not unique. When you talk to talk to your young engineers, how do they buy products? Start to understand the people you're bringing in the organization, and you'll quickly realize that this is going to be good for now, but this is really going to serve me in the future. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to, to end today's conversation on. Um, so, Matt, before we kind of wrap up here, anything else uh, going on in your life? Anything else that you want people to know about before we wrap up today's episode? Uh, nothing that's going on in my life uh, specifically, but I, I, you know, I know it's business planning time right now. And so I know there's uh, there's some people that listen to this and wonder, you know, how do I do this? Where do I go next? If only I had someone that could help me, I could figure this out. I want to encourage people, if you're thinking about that now, to reach out to us. You know, we can be we can be your trusted advisor and making you a trusted advisor. We've done this for small companies. We've done this for big companies. We're well positioned to be able to help people explore this, get started and get started in the right way. Um, we're in this for long term relationships. We're not we're never going to come in and say, hey, let's try and let's try and execute this comprehensive strategy in 30 days and be on 15 different channels. That's not how we are. That's a good way to get a large initial scope. That's not the way we operate. We want to start small. We want to start intelligent. We want to leverage the things you're already doing. And so if you're going through that process now, I'd encourage you to please reach out to us. Check out our offerings on our website, engagingperspectives.com. And if you want to talk to someone specifically, please reach out to myself or Nathan. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Yep, you can find us both on LinkedIn and you can find the Buyer's Market podcast on anywhere that podcasts are distributed. Uh, thank you and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.